And away we go. Hour three. It is a great day for talk radio. Man, that moon is shining brightly. Oh, wait. That's a spotlight for guys who are working here just beside us uh, outside the building. I guess they're building more condos, aren't they, on this waterfront? I mean, there's not a patch of earth that's not going to be given over to some kind of condominium development. You know, I really feel sorry for the folks who bought just a, a little further north across the street, just south of the Gardner Expressway, because they were promised, you know, they'd have the vantage point of the lake. And then the person building now in front of them is going to eclipse their view. What are they left with? Basically looking at uh, an apartment wall. I bought a I bought a condo on the 21st floor with a beautiful view of the lake. What's that, a 22-floor condo going in next <laughs> yeah. door? You best know the plans, you know, that uh, the city has in place or zoning and so on and so forth so that you don't, as I say, get eclipsed because, yeah, and they're doing that. They're building it uh, everywhere we thought was sort of uh, parking lots or park land uh, given over now to more development. Just goes on unabated. And I'm not sure that this would necessarily qualify as affordable housing that's going in on this uh <laughs> rather preferred location right on the waterfront. However, that being said, let's get be, uh, busy on other matters. We know that there's been uh, the situation stateside with the midterm election seeing the House revert to the Dems. And a lot of people were wondering, well, whether this uh, free trade arrangement, the USMCA, the son of free trade, or NAFTA, if you will, uh, is that going to be tweaked by the Dems? And yesterday we were talking to uh, Brian Heyman, the former U.S. ambassador to Canada, who was suggesting that perhaps, you know, uh, this would see policy tweaked, or with the steel and aluminum tariffs as well, uh, we might catch a break as far as that's concerned. I wanted some definitive answers as to the policies going forward, projecting uh, what might happen or what is in the cards. And we're joined on the line by Michael Hart, Carleton University's former Simon Reisman chair in trade policy and author of A Trading Nation, Canadian Trade Policy from Colonialism to Globalization. Michael, good to have you. Join the Oakley Show. Good afternoon. How, how are you? Very good, very good. So uh, your book, I'm kind of curious, A Trading Nation. How reliant are we on trade as a percentage of GDP? Oh, it's varied over the years, but it, it's usually uh, in the 35 to 40% range. Right. So in other words, I mean, the United States being next door, uh, it's a rather fortuitous thing, but... <laughs> Hopefully, uh, it would be something where we could trade freely. Do we have this USMCA? Would you qualify that as free trade? Uh, no, not, not really. It is a step backwards from the NAFTA, uh, which it replaces, uh, because there are a number of areas where the United States under Trump uh, could not abide the level of uh, of access that we had, and therefore they wanted to dial it back. So uh, no free trade agreement ever is really free trade. It's, uh, it's you know, still managed trade by governments, but it moved towards freer trade. Let's put it that way. All right. Uh, by the way, uh, you're saying it's not as good as NAFTA. Did we give up too much, or did we have any choice? I don't know how much choice we had. I, I, you know, I... <laughs> thought at one point that we would have been better off just telling the Americans, sorry, uh, we're not going to go down that road anymore. Uh, if you want to, uh, you know, ask the Congress to get us out of the, you know, throw us out of the NAFTA, go ahead, do that, and we'll live by the rules of the uh, World Trade Organization, and we'll be not much different than from what you're trying to pro- propose. 
Well, it's interesting because that's the thing people, uh, I guess, unless they really followed this, didn't understand that it was up to Congress ultimately as to whether this deal would be signed off on. It hasn't even yet been signed off on, has it? No. No, I mean, under U.S. uh, law, uh, well, go back to the Constitution, it's the uh, Congress that is responsible for trade policy, and it has delegated negotiating authority to the president, but ultimately he must come back to them. Uh, and get approval of the agreement and uh, put in place the implementing legislation. All right, and so Congress, uh, constituting the two houses, the Senate, which the Republicans still control, but the House has reverted to the Dems, do you foresee any changes in the deal that we'd cobbled together, the tentative deal, the USMCA? I think this is a very hard one to read, uh, given the the nature of U.S. politics nowadays. I mean, it used to be that it wouldn't be difficult for Canada uh, to work with the administration and put together a bilateral kind of uh, group of people who would pass the the legislation. But now, uh, given the kind of animus that the two parties have toward each other, cobbling together such a coalition has become increasingly difficult. Uh, Now, uh, Trump has given 90-day notice, so it could be passed by the lame duck uh, Congress, that is, before the new Congress comes into place in uh, in January. But that Congress can also say, sorry, we've got other priorities, and this isn't one of them. It's interesting because yesterday when we were speaking to the U.S. ambassador, the former U.S. ambassador to Canada, Mr. Heyman, uh, he was suggesting that maybe the Dems in the House could sway policy on the steel and aluminum tariffs that are penalizing Canadian producers and uh, exporters. Uh, do you think there's anything to that? I don't know why they would. Uh, I mean, other than to kind of spite uh, Trump. Well, but but don't they actually depend to a certain extent on our steel when it uh, comes to auto manufacturing, for example? Oh, yeah, they do. But, uh, I mean, what's even worse is almost all steel production in Canada is by U.S.-based companies. And so it, it isn't the U.S.-based companies that want that. It's labor. Uh, and the Democratic Party is much more dependent on labor than the Republicans. So that's why, I mean, they, the politics are quite complex. All right. Uh, by the way, we're talking to Michael Hart, the Carleton University's former Simon Reisman Chair in Trade Policy, author of A Trading Nation, Canadian Trade Policy from Colonialism to Globalization, just trying to understand how maybe the political landscape has shifted regarding trade with the House reverting to the Dems. You know, but I do want to ask you, because it's in the title of your book, From Colonialism to Globalization, globalization uh is a pejorative in certain circles, you know, for economic nationalists. Uh, it wasn't when I wrote the book. <laughs> it wasn't, okay. No. okay. But why is it Why is it in certain circles? Uh, well, they now think that, uh, that the move towards a more global economy has benefited the elites, but has not let benefited labor. And there's a certain amount of truth to that. Uh, I mean, in any time you move towards more open markets, they're winners and losers. I mean, ultimately, the economy as a whole benefits from uh, more competition, therefore more open economies. But in that, there is adjustment, and the adjustment uh, is borne by some industries and the benefits by other industries. Uh, and I think that the, the wisdom now is that manufacturing labor in particular uh, has uh, has taken the brunt of the adjustment, and that's who Trump is appealing to. 
Yeah, as a matter of fact, uh, at the Monk debate on Friday here in town, uh, Steve Bannon, who was the architect of his presidential campaign, was referring to the winners in this instant through globalization are the party of Davos. You know, they're looked after, and yet uh, all the jobs can be offshored. And to your point, the labor component, you know, the workers, the blue-collar folks, the folks in the middle class in the heartland, uh they're left without jobs, uh, they lose their homes, and so on and so forth. So they're victimized by this turn to globalization. It may be good for a certain strata of society. Uh, is that a fair condemnation of globalization? Yeah, I think that's a fair comment. I don't know whether you want to condemn it. It's a fair comment. Uh, I mean, you, you know, the counter to that is to say there is no future in these kinds of jobs uh, in the more sophisticated economy that's developing in North America. Uh, and that, too, is true. But in the United States, they've compounded that uh, with the fact that they've been unable to deal with the immigration problem. And so the uh, the number of people available in the labor market at the bottom end is increasing and is being pressured uh, by illegal immigration, uh, which is willing to work for even lower wages than Native Americans. And so uh, these two issues are, are really quite uh, closely interlinked. You know, it's interesting you point that out because uh, too often you'll hear the the critique of Trump's position on uh, stopping illegal migrants from entering the U.S. as being racist-based, whereas uh, others might see it in terms of protecting American workers so there's no race to the bottom, as you just cited. Uh, in other words, that's what it is. It's uh, about protecting American workers. Do you think there's something to that? Yes, and I think that's why we, we are seeing this, hor- this historic... Um, Migration, to use a word that may not be appropriate, but migration from the Democratic Party to the, to the, the Trump Republican Party uh, by the kind of people who uh, may have finished high school or maybe not, but who are in that tier of the labor market who are most threatened uh, by uh, illegal immigration. What do you make of economic nationalism? Because that's been considered to be somewhat of the antidote or the opposite of globalization. And uh, Trump, when he was asked, you know, about being a nationalist, and again, some people ascribe that to being a dog whistle for uh, white racist politics. He says, uh, no, I'm a nationalist. I care about my, my country first. Economic nationalism, is that a good or a bad thing? Usually considered, you know, that... Uh that you try to say we're, we're not we're, you know, we're not going to trade we're going to try to depend on ourselves and so on and that in the end is a recipe for uh, for impoverishing a nation but i don't think that that's what he has in mind i think what he has in mind is that the the first job of a president is to look after his own people not to look after the world uh, and so uh, the the davos elite uh, has taken the view it doesn't matter what country you are, you know, you must pursue policies that are good for the world as a whole. Well, we've had economic nationalists uh, of all political stripe in this country. Walter Gordon was one such, wasn't he? He certainly was an economic nationalist, yes. But it, I don't think Trump and Walter Gordon are in the same kind of... Uh, <laughs> intellectual group right no but it, i mean what it does is lend credence to the idea that sometimes you know you've got to look after your own and you want to make sure that you're not uh beholden to or just setting up a branch plant economy am i wrong right. yes okay yeah, no, no that's true uh, and so yeah there is some commonality uh, between the economic nationalism of that era uh, and uh, trump's policies today i mean trump is basically saying slow down uh, this globalization. There are people who 
really are harmed by this, and we need to do things in order to help them, particularly in our own country. So if we didn't go to uh, the states and cobble together this UM, um, uh, USMCA uh, with Mexico as well, sort of the uh, NAFTA 2.0, and you're suggesting we could have done trade internationally under the WTO or the TPP, you know, going to uh, the Asian markets, do you think uh, that would have been, I don't know, uh, a, maybe give us some leverage? Uh, would that be more practical to do that? I mean, what do you make of trading with uh, the Asian countries? Uh, should we be more robust in that front, including even getting our pipelines built so we can get oil out to the east? Well, that would certainly make a big difference if uh – if you know what is potentially our number one export, we're able to get it outside of North America and be able to get world prices for it rather than the heavily discounted North American price, uh, which is really uh, basically driving that industry out of Alberta. Uh, but more generally, uh, I mean, we negotiated first the Canada-U.S. Free Trade Agreement and then the NAFTA in order to provide Canadian. Uh, manufacturers and Canadian companies of all stripes, a much larger market within which to develop the economies of scale. And as a result, we are a richer country today than we were then. Uh, And the adjustment in Canada was pretty good. In the United States, which is much a larger economy, uh, and which uh, had never had the kind of trade orientation that we did, resistance to that has always been stronger. you know, when the United States uh, talks about that other countries are protectionist, yeah, but, you know, the United States has always had deep protectionist pocket. And so to a trade negotiator like me, it was particularly galling uh, to have the attack on uh, on our dairy sector. Not that I didn't disagree with it. I mean, the fact that we have tariffs in the high 200s uh, on, on dairy products is obscene. But it's a little difficult to accept that coming from the United States when they equally protect uh, peanuts, tobacco, uh, cotton, wool, sugar, and similar commodities, uh, and have done that for a much longer period than we ever did. Uh, In fact, the the protection that we put in place for the dairy sector uh, was based on a clause that was inserted into the uh, the. GATT agreement, the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, the predecessor to the WTO, specifically because the United States market was closed and therefore uh, we needed something in order to make sure that our uh, our dairy uh, producers would not be inundated by the United States. Right. And so uh, there is no free trade per se. It's freer trade if uh, is the best that we can aspire to. It also sounds to me like what you're saying is our government's policy is holding this country down or back and... Uh, Hopefully, somebody will see the light. Uh, I appreciate talking to you very much on these matters. It's always fascinating to me, and I hope to others. My my pleasure, John. All right, Michael. uh, We'll look forward to doing it again sometime. Michael Hart, Carleton University's former Simon Reisman Chair in Trade Policy, author of A Trading Nation, Canadian Trade Policy from Colonialism to Globalization. Some interesting things he had to say there about, you know, how Trump sees protectionism, uh, protecting American workers, which is, you know, again, that argument, you don't want uh, unskilled workers flooding your market and taking it down to it's a race to the bottom, which is why he's got some union support on those uh, matters as well. And the low wage worker uh, is very much in his camp.